there's a part of my job that I was never prepared for. And it has been increasingly difficult with each minute that I've continued to work here. And that is the loss of members that I have learned to know, to grow with, and really to love. It has caused me a pain that I was never trained for in school, an upset that I had never prepared for emotionally in taking on this job, and a sense of emptiness that I have felt for quite some time. This year, in a relatively short span of time, from May until August, three such people that I prayed with almost every week, that I knew intimately and well, that I was made to feel a part of their family, left us. And today, on this East Corps, I'm feeling their absence, as you are. Because while our synagogue is strong and healthy, it's very hard to replace such souls who are so dedicated, so engaged. Our first death that happened in May that I'm thinking of is that of Susan Niederman, whose son Mark just read for us a few minutes ago. She was one of the sweetest and kindest souls I've ever been blessed to know. She sat in the same seat in the sanctuary every week, and she had an incredible satisfaction, especially at this holiday, when her children would all come from the different synagogues where they celebrate, and they would spend Mincha and Yisker and Neila together. She, like her husband, was a survivor of the Shoah. She was in Auschwitz a young, beautiful girl whose looks really are what kept her alive. She has an incredible story, and so much of it I could tell, and I shared at her eulogy. But one piece that's inspired me that I'd like to share with you. It's the story of how Susan met her husband, Leslie. Leslie is also a survivor of the Holocaust, and he predeceased her by a few years. He made it to this country and lost all of his family in the Shoah. So every day, he would run to the docks where the boats would come in from the old country, and he would pour over the manifests of the people who were coming over to America, looking for anyone with the same last name in a hope that he could connect some level of family and lineage. Each day he would pour over the manifest. And one day a particular ship came in and it showed a young woman named Niederman, same last name as him, coming over. He waited. He met her. They played Jewish geography for hours upon hours and days upon days and came to two final conclusions. One, they shared the same last name but were not related in any way whatsoever. And two, they had quickly fallen in love with each other. And these two people, with the same last name, had their hearts brought one to the other, started a life for each other, a business for each other, brought three incredible children into this world, and beautiful grandchildren, and made an impact that we should all be so blessed to feel in our lives. 
I chose that story to share with you about Susan because as we remember our loved ones today and we think about all of the things we can control in life, there is this piece of vashertness of destiny that sometimes is beyond our control. It's true, we can pick things out that change the course of our lives in certain ways, but in other ways, there are some things that just happen, some people's times that just expire, some things that occur that are beyond our control. And when we see it and feel it in a story of love, the way that Susan and Leslie shared, we understand the greater goodness and the greater plan sometimes of the God in which we worship. I miss Susan very much. My hardest day this summer was when I was in Jerusalem and I received a call from our cantor on my Israeli cell phone. It was a uh, Sunday afternoon. I had finished my classes at Hartman. I was standing out in my favorite place in our apartment out on our uh, deck, Mir Peset, overlooking a beautiful Jerusalem day. And he told me the sad news of the death of our longtime Gabai and my good friend, Ralph Eisman. First time he said it, I didn't hear him correctly. He had to say it over and over told me that Ralph died peacefully in his sleep, went to bed on Shabbos, and didn't wake up. I hung up the phone with Cantor Singer, and I went into the bedroom, and I sat and I cried like I hadn't cried in a long time. I felt such pain and loss over my friend who had infected me every single Shabbat with goodness and with sweetness. There are countless things I can share with you about our friend Ralph and how he was absolutely tireless in his dedication to our synagogue. He's the one who set the path for Michael Brenner, who serves as our Gabbai. He works and worked with every single bar and bat mitzvah family with love, with understanding, compassion. And as I wrote in remarks in his eulogy, Ralph was the epitome of a Yekka Jew a German Jew, through and through. And as I said, being a Yekka is much more than a place of origin. It is a way of life. It means that you keep your hair well groomed. It means that you're always clean shaven. Your clothes are pressed and neat. And it means that you show up at 8.55 for a 9 o'clock appointment. It means you follow rules no matter what. And it means you love efficiency. And it means being a Yekka that you laugh as at something that is earned and never gratuitous. And that was Ralph. He ran our services efficiently, smoothly, neatly. He laughed if you earned it, but never gratuitously. And he was as dependable as a Swiss clock. The only person happier than me when we finished our services at 11.15 was Ralph. He would smile and look at his watch and give me one of these. When I said goodbye to him on the Shabbat before I left, I asked what he wanted from Israel, and I knew exactly what he was going to say when I asked him. I said, you want a yarmulke? Do you want a talis? What do you want? He said, I want a prayer at the Kotel. And as soon as I went to the Kotel, I had a short list of people who asked for the same, and I included him in my prayer. And soon after he died, soon after that cry on my bed, I got dressed, canceled our plans for the evening, and I went right back to that hotel. 
and I prayed for my friend. I think of uh, a lesson that Ralph shared that is emblematic of him, which I want to share with you in the value of tradition. Whenever someone would come as a guest to our synagogue and they would carry the Torah around, Ralph would scare the crap out of them. <laughs> People were coming up the bima shaking like this. He would say to them, look him right in the eye, this little German old man, he'd say, listen, at this shul, you walk down the aisle and the people come to the Torah. The Torah doesn't go to the people. <laughs> and people would smile and he'd say, do you understand? And if they laughed, he'd say, do you understand? And tall, big, burly man would say, yes, sir, right to him. So me wanting to make this the most friendly and welcoming shul you can imagine, I sat with him one day on a Sunday when he was here. I said, Ralph, you know, what's the deal with the Torah? You know, let them walk the way they want to walk. It's, let's make people feel good if they have this honor. He said, uh, people, regardless if they're visiting or not, need to show reverence to the Torah, whether they're a regular here or whether they're visiting. And one of the ways we show reverence is going to the Torah and not the Torah going to others. We should treat the elderly the same way, he said. That lesson stuck with me. And after that time, I never gave him any issues for sticking to his guns with that. I said when he died that I imagined all of our ancestors, from Abraham to Moses, getting up right from where they were and going to Ralph instead of Ralph coming to meet them. Because he deserved it. He deserved that respect. And every week since I've been in this synagogue and I see its beauty and its splendor and its sweetness and its vibrance, there's just a little piece missing for me. And that's in Ralph's absence. I miss my friend Ralph. And Ralph and Susan shared something in common. They were both Nitzolei HaShoah, both survivors of the Holocaust which is emblematic of the generation in which we're now living, where so many of the people who were survivors of the Holocaust are dying, and very, very few are still left alive to tell the story. And we owe them the greatest debt of gratitude for the way in which they lived, for continuing to tell the story of the Holocaust, so its story is never forgotten. The last story I want to tell you about is a person who died most recently of the three, who also was a pillar of this congregation, and that is Dr. Seymour Freed, who died August 14th of this past year. When I think of Sai, I think of uh, all the culture that he loved and absorbed and incorporated into his life. Whether it was a museum, or whether it was the opera, or whether it was fine food or wines, he just had a real appreciation and a zest for life that was so valuable and so meaningful to all who were blessed to know him. But of the things that remind me the most of what it was that Seymour lived for, it was the way in which he was an architect. And any good architect, when they build any project, whether it's a treehouse or whether it's a 500,000 square foot building, they start with a foundation. And the foundation that Seymour incorporated into his life and the way that he built his life 
was based on how one builds memories. And he enabled his family, his three incredible children, his devoting and incredibly inspirational wife and his best friend, to create a life and a household that was built on making memories. Memories for them and memories for every soul that walked into it, based on Jewish values, culture, love of the fellow human, and seeing the good in every opportunity. I spoke quite reflectively at Sai's funeral about how every week I would march around with the Torah, and every week I would see him. If I walked by and he was sitting, he was always holding Sylvia's hand. And when he was standing and I came by, he never shook my hand, not once. I'd stick out my hand every week, and he would grab my face, and he would kiss me. And of course I felt love in that, but I felt an even greater love when I saw him do it to others. Because it wasn't about just me and him. It was the way he showed love to others. And in showing those loves and in building those memories that I'm feeling now as that incredible architect, we feel a sense of pain, a sense of emptiness in their absence. I think of the Basharitness in the life of Susan. I think of the reverence we should have to our tradition and to our elders when I think of Ralph. And when I think of Seymour, I think of being an architect and how it is we build a life with memories. But no matter how I think of them, it's hard for our synagogue to move forward. And to be honest with you, this is the hard yisker for me. My first one without my dad. I did a lot of thinking about how this is going to uh, apply to my life, and I found that other people who are smarter than I articulated it much better than I ever could. Lisa, Leon Wieseltier, in his book, Kaddish, tells a story that I think epitomizes my feelings and especially my feelings in the loss of these three great leaders for our shul and these three friends of mine in addition to my dad. He said he was feeling the loss of his father on a particular day in Washington where he worked. He was walking down the streets and in somewhere in DuPont Circle, a beautiful day, and he was overcome with a thought that had never hit him before as he was in pain missing his dad. He said, oh, I'm a man without a father. My entire life, I've been a man with a father. And now, I'm a man without a father. So, uh, Weaseltier sits down on a bench in front of pigeons, and he starts crying. And then he picks up his head and he says to himself, what am I, crazy? Of course, I'm not a man without a father. I will be a man with a father every day of my life until I die. And he got it. And that's what resonated for me. We won't have the same relationship with our father if they're not there, but you're always with a father. And as I struggled to think about our synagogue and the pain I felt and the loss of these three longtime members, these three people who have given their heart and soul to our community and our congregation and embodied the very best values in Yiddishkeit and Judaism and humanity for our world. And I wondered, honestly, how is our synagogue going to continue in the next generation without people like this? I thought of that quote from Weaseltier. 
We thought of all of you who are still here. We're not a people without Susan or without Ralph or without Seymour. I'm not a man without a father. We are inspired by them, by their values, by the ethics, by their dedication, by the way they live their life. And when we continue to live that way with those values, then they're living too. And that is the greatest memorial we could give them. So our prayer is that we hold our heads high like Weaseltier did. And we remember their inspiration. And we continue to live and always say, we are a man with a father.